From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. One of the jobs the Army created in a restructuring of its IT organization has a nominee. Major General John Morrison would add another star and become the Deputy Chief of Staff for the G6 if the Senate confirms him. According to C4ISRnet, he'd report to Army Chief of Staff General James McConville. The Navy has a new Director of Information Warfare Integration. Rear Admiral Kathleen Creighton will move up from her current position as head of the Navy's Cybersecurity Division. FedScoop reports she also served on the Joint Staff's Command, Control, Communications, and Computer Systems team. The 3% pay raise military personnel would get in 2021 should go to civilian employees, too, according to a group of members of Congress. The House version of the National Defense Authorization Act includes the pay raise for the military, but a new House Appropriations Committee bill doesn't mention a civilian pay raise at all. NextGov reports that means the House Appropriations Committee is willing to go along with the Trump administration's proposal for a 1% raise for civilians. The House Appropriations Committee's defense uh, spending bill lists $694 billion in spending for fiscal 2021. That's $1.3 billion above last year's top line, but it's $3.7 billion below President Trump's budget request. Susanna Bloom is senior fellow and director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. She's former deputy chief of staff for programs and plans to the deputy secretary of defense. Susanna, thanks very much for coming on the, uh, on the program. What did you, you and your team are looking at how exactly the numbers align to the national defense strategy? What are you seeing progress-wise for doing that, given that we're now two years into this NDS? Yeah, the two the NDS is over two years old, actually closer to two and a half. And uh, you know, I've asked this question every single year when the uh, Trump administration has released its president's budget request. And uh, you know, as as usual, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, we have found some real progress in NDS implementation in some areas, in particular investment in new command and control architectures. In other areas like artificial intelligence, spending is actually down year over year, which is concerning given the importance of those technologies to future warfighting. Do we know, can we, can we guess what the reasons are for where the money is going and what they're asking for and then what the changes are that the various committees of jurisdiction are making on the Hill? So, uh, you know, Congress, uh, you know, th this dance happens every year, right, where the president makes a request uh, and then Congress does what they will with it. And I'm seeing this year uh, kind of a pretty familiar pattern as to what happens often. Congress pretty consistently adds additional hardware, particularly aircraft and ships above what the president's budget usually requests, um, and you know, scoops up or harvests, uh, you know, cuts from a uh, spread over a wide variety of different accounts in different spots, uh, and that pattern is playing out this year, much like it does uh, or has in years past. You write about a couple of the good things, and we've talked about a number of them on this program in the past. But I wanted to point them up just and just get your input as to why you believe they make sense as far as allocating resources 
in, uh, in uh, conjunction with the national defense strategy. The first of those is the MDO concept that the Army is working on. Second one is uh, JADC2 uh, that the Air Force is lining up. Those are all joint operations uh, initiatives. Why are those so important and why do those fit with what the national defense strategy so well in your view? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that the more that folks inside and outside the department look at the uh, warfighting operational challenges, particularly that China is going to present to the United States into the future, um, you know, there's a level of jointness that is going to be required from the force that surpasses anything that we have seen previously. You know, I've heard the tagline and, and noted it in the report, you know, we need to be able to to kill, you know, hundreds, you know, thousands of targets in, in just a few days, right? And, and uh, that's an operational tempo that is higher, much higher and requires the joint force to be able to connect, uh, you know, all sensors and all shooters is another is another tagline that we hear a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if an Air Force plane, you know, finds a target that needs to be hit, it has to be able to send that information to potentially Navy asset or an Army asset, uh, you know, to be able to strike. And uh, that's why these new joint operational concepts and particularly command and control concepts are going to be so critical. And it's also the reason that we structured the report this year to break down a lot of the silos that you see in the way the department presents budget information and instead looked at it from a functional perspective, different pieces of the kill chain. Uh, and so, you know, that analysis revealed a, a bit of a different take on the defense budget request than than what you normally see. And that's where I wanted to go in the time that we have left, Susanna, is at, at what point would it be a good idea for the department to start to think about the way that it constructs its budget that way. I understand the way they do it is a function of how they have to ask for it because they have to ask Congress to get the money. They can't just decide what they want to do like a private sector company builds a budget. But at some point in time, it strikes me that as joint operations become more necessary and more well-received within the department, that seems to me to be one of the hardest parts. seems that structuring the budget that way would make a lot of sense. I, I think that's absolutely right, Francis, and there's certainly an awful lot of people out there who agree with us, including some folks on the Hill and, and many people in the department as well. You know, the way that the budget gets presented is a function of, of the appropriations titles that Congress has established. Those, uh, you know, arguably don't really reflect or are, not, are no longer the best way to categorize the way the department thinks about making investments. Um, you know, in addition, even very simple uh, adoption of modern data management techniques, tagging, for example, would go a long way in terms of being able to pull information out of the department's uh, budget databases. We have less than a minute left, Susanna, and I apologize because your team has done terrific work and we're not doing it justice here. But you write in this work, DOD's made a down payment in the kind of command and control the joint force will need in a future conflict with China and Russia and continues to develop its portfolio, but the department needs to do more to ensure it has the posture, logistics, and joint training needed to make its new operational concepts work. 30 seconds left, Susanna. Where do they need to do the work the most? I think in particular, when we're looking at the Indo-Pacific theater, you know, real investment in updating the training program for high-end combat, joint high-end combat, uh, as well as in, in posture and making our posture in the Asia-Pacific more resilient. Susanna Bloom, thanks very much as always. It's
Terrific to have you back on the program. My pleasure, Francis. Thanks. Up next, secure artificial intelligence at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the next move for the Joint AI Center to push the next technology wave. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back to Joint Artificial Intelligence Centers, building a framework and standards for AI. That work depends on tight security standards, and the department has some work to do there. Anissa Nash is Program Director for Audit in the Cyberspace Operations Directorate at the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. Anissa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the scope of the work that you undertook here looking at the Jake? So, hi, Francis. Thank you for having me. Um, we conducted the audit to determine DOD's progress in developing its AI framework and to identify any gaps and weaknesses that could result in duplicative AI projects, um, inconsistent tracking of those projects, and the inconsistent implementation of system and network security controls uh, on that, that are used for those projects. This struck me, Anissa, as a good news, bad news story, because the good news is that you're right. Uh, Jake's taken some steps as of March 2020 to develop an AI governance framework and standards. What have they done uh, well so far? So far, um, they've developed eight national initiative initiatives, which are uh, AI-related projects that focus on problems that uh, cross the military services, such as predictive maintenance, um, humanitarian assistance, the health of our war fighters, uh, providing critical information to our first responders, and improving productivity in our business processes. In addition, um, in February of 2020, uh, the Jake adopted uh, ethical standards that will require uh, DOD components to use the appropriate level of uh, judgment when developing and applying AI technologies and to test the safety and security of those technologies. A couple of things that you found uh, that the Jake still needs to do that I wanted to ask you about. One of them is developing a process to accurately account for AI projects. It sounds on first read that that's just kind of like a basic inventory. Am I reading that right? It's a basic inventory, but with the rapid speed of AI within the department, we have projects that are standing up and that are closing down. So we felt that the department needed to have a better accounting of their AI portfolio. You write that you looked at four DOD components and two contractors, and you found some issues with security controls. What did you find? Where are these organizations lacking, Anissa? So the, the details are too sensitive to, to explain in this form, but I can, I can say that we found um, uh, uh, vulnerability issues, uh, issues with uh, access to networks and systems that support AI projects and the protection of the data on those systems and networks. I think the four points that you write in the, in the unredacted report strike me as being the same kinds of things that everybody else seems to struggle with with security issues. Um, didn't consistently configure systems to enforce strong passwords, reviewing uh, networks and systems for malicious activity, basic blocking and tackling cyber hygiene kinds of things. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say, and it's an ongoing uh, challenge within the department and, and across the federal government that is that the department just constantly uh, work with to correct um, daily. 
Um, one of the recommendations that you make is pursuant to that, Anissa, and that is that the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, and Air Force CIOs develop a plan to correct these security weaknesses. Is there also a role here potentially for the Office of the Defense Department CIO in OSD? Um, not at the, not at the component level. It really is up to up to the component to ensure that the the weaknesses that we identified in the report are corrected in a timely manner. The another recommendation that you make is that the Jake director establishes continues to work on this framework. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was including a standard definition of AI. If we want to split hairs, do you mean a standard definition for AI as the Defense Department? sees it, implements it, or just more more broadly, more conceptually, maybe even philosophically, Anissa? Uh, that is a, a sticky conversation, Francis. But uh, what we were intending from a DOD perspective, how DOD define uh, AI, AI projects, and it could be that the AI is AI included in, in a technology or, you know, or strictly AI. One of the so we, we are asking that the DOD just work with the components to to come up with this standard definition. And it's going to be an ever-changing definition because AI is an ever-changing emerging technology. And, and that's exactly where I wanted to go next, Anissa. As it pertains to your work, how does your potential work change or what do you look at moving forward given the fluidity of the AI space in general and within the Defense Department in particular? Well, uh, it will pro it will definitely mean a lot more work for the the oversight community, the auditors, because the AI projects are being uh, stood up, you know, constantly, and you know it's going to be a challenge for us to keep up. But we want to ensure that we provide the the appropriate level of oversight to ensure that components are applying and developing AI technologies. Uh, correctly. Anissa Nash of the Defense Department Office of Inspector General, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Up next, the number three job in the Pentagon could be going away soon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why now and why not eliminate the office of the Chief Management Officer? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The chief management officer of the Defense Department, Lisa Hirschman, is claiming big savings her office found. She told Government Matters on this week's virtual conference, NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond, her office has saved the department $11 billion. That claim comes the same week the House and Senate both will consider eliminating her office. Jerry McGinn's executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former principal deputy director of the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy. Jerry, welcome back. We talked about uh, several months ago this concept of eliminating the CMO office. It's something that you think is a good idea. Has the fact that uh, Lisa says she's found $11 billion in savings or anything else that's happened in the interim changed your mind about that? No, uh, it hasn't. As a matter of fact, the uh, the savings which uh, Ms. Hersman found are tremendous, and in fact, it reinforces sort of the view that that I have, and I think Congress has in in the draft uh, NDAAs that uh, both the House and the Senate um, committees have passed. So the um, I always like to say the the CMO is sort of a 
a great idea in theory that has sort of been mugged in reality by the reality of the Pentagon uh, and it, it's a battle with them. Um, and so I think what Ms. Hirschman has done here is focused, those $11 billion are from the fourth estate, which are the Office of Secretary of Defense and the agencies that report directly through um, the Deputy Secretary and Secretary. So I think that's exactly what um, a um, uh, new performance um, a PIO that is in the draft legislation would be greatly to, to focus on. Does it matter then, I mean, if, if a lot of these duties that her office performs now would be absorbed into a performance improvement officer's uh, a job, does it matter where that person reports? Right now she's number three on the chain at the Pentagon. This new person would report to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. What difference does changing those boxes around make, Jerry? That's a great uh, question, Francis. And I think the reality of the last 20 years, the experience where we've tried to have, the department has had, tried to have a um, independent third um, uh, silo, independent organization, be that chief management officer, whatever it was called in the various incarnations, just doesn't work in, in, the, in the Pentagon um, uh, Pentagon reality. I've seen this defense, the business board study that came out in May came to that conclusion. In my experience, both as an official in the Pentagon and, and as, a, as a contractor directly supporting one of the predecessor organizations, I, this is very much the case. The, 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 whatever the, the management organization is, um, as an independent organization, just does not have the bureaucratic throw weight that the, the military departments or organizations such as CAPE in the, um, or Undersecretary of Policy do. Um, and But having that performance management officer directly reporting to the deputy as part of the deputy organization, then you're speaking for the deputy secretary as opposed to set of its own organization that just, um, it just hasn't worked. Uh, Aaron Mehta in Defense News writing about this this week and, and talking to you about it writes, in 2016, Congress elevated the deputy chief management officer position to a full CMO role, officially designating the CMO the number three official in the department. But in late 2019, members of Congress expressed a belief that CMO's office hadn't significantly succeeded. Is that nearly enough time? That's not even four full years, Jerry, for us to figure out what's really going on. And I'm not specifically even talking about the CMO's office. Tremendous churn in the office of the Secretary of Defense over the last four or five years. And I wonder if it's even possible to understand where all the cards have settled, let alone whether they've worked. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's, that's a fair question, Francis. Um, but I think you, uh, although the, the CMO um, role was, was elevated uh, to the 2016 NDAA, similar incarnations have been tried. And they, but they've tinkered with the authorities and uh, tried to tinker in the, in the building with the organization, uh, but the, the results have been um, largely the same. So um, it, it's just, if you look at the Defense Business Board study, the, uh, the CMO organization and its predecessor just are not viewed, uh, not really respected in, by other organizations inside the building. So what I think the, the, the Congress is doing with the, and what I, I would uh, concur is, the, is, is you know, the, the, the idea is right, but let's empower it in the, in the right kind of way by using the deputy secretary's authorities and uh, scoping down the organization of the CMO. And just, um, and, and I can talk a bit about how uh, Secretary Esper has really come down this road in the sense that he's brought his the night court approach from the Secretary of the Army to the overall department. And what that does is essentially 
he has empowered them. He has empowered the secretary, the departments, the military departments, to give them bogeys on defense reform. I want you to reach this number, or you know, and then hold them accountable. And then at the same time, he put Ms. Hirschman directly on the fourth estate, and you know, she's put together a, a unified palm for the first time for that, and that's where she's found those savings. So focusing the effort. Uh, and, and you know, like a business does, there's no there's no chief management officer at Xerox or 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 Lockheed Martin. They empower the PNL leaders, profit and loss leaders, and then they hold them accountable. Uh, and I think the secretary is taking a similar approach, which is why you're starting to see results. And that's why I'd, I think um, the CMO having a, a titular CMO is 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 not necessary um, for the outcome that the department wants to achieve. We have about 30 seconds left, Jerry. At what point is it a good idea, do you think, for Congress to just leave the boxes alone for a couple of years and let the everything settle down and let the Pentagon figure out what everybody's doing? Yeah, no, I, great, great uh, question. And I think what the Senate language has done is it's sort of it's it's given the deputy the authority to to um, uh, you know the 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 runway to say hey let let let's um, restructure this let's reapproach this and then give them runway. So I I think Congress hopefully after this will kind of give it some time and then um, we'll see what is most effective in terms of outcomes for the department. Jerry McGinn, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Great, great to see you, Francis. Be well. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, the NatSec 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond Virtual Conference continues this week. Tomorrow is day four. You'll learn how COVID-19's impacted the Army with Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy, Chief of Staff General James McConville, and a lot more. The conference is on tomorrow and Friday from 1 to 2 p.m. You can join our free webinar at FedInsider.com or tune in on WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.